elsewhere. My name is Ian Ditchburn. And I'm Cody Harridge. So after a brief hiatus in March, we are now back with a fresh new episode with journalist and author Jeremy Allen. Jeremy has been living in Indonesia since 1979, and as you will soon hear, he has a few stories to tell. Yeah, I was actually back in, in Indonesia in 2014, um, and one thing that I found interesting over there... God, it was great when you were gone. I know. <laughs> Thanks, Cody. Um, one thing that I found interesting was because of the vital role that tourism plays in their economy, a lot of the local people will take on the name of some sort of Western star, usually because they're afraid that their name is going to be too hard to pronounce or difficult to remember. So the guy who took me parasailing, his name was Rambo. And then there was this other dude who I hung out with a fair bit, and his name was Marley. So I'll let you go ahead and guess what his sort of deal was. And on that note, happy 420, everyone. And happy birthday to you, Cody. How oh. does it feel to be 16? <laughs> Finally. So, so fresh, so new, so yeah. ready for the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, your birthday is actually on April 20th. Truly a child born of great destiny. Well, I had two options. It was a dictator or a pothead, so a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah. well, we're very lucky to have you here as a sound engineer. I think, <laughs> I think this is your path. Yeah, fair. Yeah, so uh, I actually hit up Marley for some Indonesian music, and he was kind enough to send over some tracks. One of which being uh, some reggae with a bit of Indonesian flair to it. This is Republic Sulap by Tony Q. Rastafara. Hope you enjoy it. Negerinya para pakar pesulap 
suka menyulap apa saja dari enggak ada hingga di ada-ada dari yang ada hingga tiada Jeremy Allen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. So the last time we spoke at English Bay, um, you mentioned that the area that you're staying in now where you're in Vancouver, um, Olympic Village, used to be a swamp. I, I think the politically correct term is wetland. Yes. Yeah, that's <laughs> fair enough. But it, it got me thinking, um, uh, if you remembered what it was like, because you left Vancouver in 79, around then, what the downtown east side was like, the area that we're broadcasting from. Yes, yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, th this was literally Skid Row. I mean, that you know, that old term from the uh, from the forties, fifties, and sixties. And I would never come down here. Gastown is about as close as I got. I'd usually go to like Commercial Drive. If I was coming downtown. Remember, I'm a, I was a North Vancouver boy, so there was really no reason for me to come here. But when I when I took my sabbatical from Indonesia in 1996, I was looking for an affordable place to stay downtown, and I ended up in the old BC Electric building. That's the corner of Carroll and uh, Hastings, which is about a block from the studio. Very in close fact, by. Right across the street from where I remember Co-op Radio used to be, in, in Pigeon Park. Mm. At the time, it was set up for, uh, for film, you know, for, for small film companies and internet startups. So I was like right in the ground floor of the internet startups. I, I got a room on the, on the fourth floor. The place was the old BC Electric building, and it was the terminus of the, the streetcars. So, there were still streetcars running back then. No, 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 no. Yeah, okay. No, but it, uh, the streetcars had been uh, had been turfed out in by the fifties, mm. but the building was still there, and it was, and it had become a heritage building. In, in fact, actually, that that was the problem. Was somebody bought it? Some some uh, mining guy, from what I understand, uh, you know, he made his fortune. He decided to buy some downtown real estate, and then only found out after he bought it there was a heritage building. He couldn't do anything with it. <laughs> It doesn't get much more affordable than Corral and Hastings, though, for heritage buildings. Yeah, I would well, okay. but um, so, so what he did was he uh, he sort of sealed the place off and rented it out for a uh, dollar a square foot and rented it out to internet startups and, and film companies because film was film and, and television was just starting up in uh, in Vancouver at the time. Was that uh, was that to work out of or just did they do well, filming? Well, well now um, a lot of the people you know they, they you know they set up as offices. Right, okay. Yeah. So it wasn't for the filming. Yeah, okay, right. But because it was the old uh, BC Electric building, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and the end of the trolley line, they still had the showers downstairs for, you know, for, you know, for, the, uh, for the trolley conductors, for the drivers to come in after the shift and have a shower before going home. Right. You know, from the 30s and 40s. And then somebody put in a washing machine. They put, you know, people bought in fridges and stuff. And because, uh, you know, especially with internet startups, people were realizing that they simply were not going home. They would be working 18 hours and then just you know, literally collapse over their uh, workstations and then wake up again and start working again. So everybody started then giving up their apartments you know, to save the rent right. and then just spending all their time in, 
in Carol Street. So it, it became like a little, uh, you know, like a little commune, like a, a, te- a tech, uh, you know, a tech um, So I did exactly the same thing. And for a while there, I was the resident writer. Hmm. How long were you living there for? Uh, six months. Okay. Yeah. So it was just a little break. Yeah, from, right. It was a, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd come back here uh, after my divorce thinking I was going to stay, but then by early 97, the film industry started booming, uh, the television industry started booming again, and somebody had a, a sitcom they wanted to write, you know, and they needed me to write it. So I, I flew back. That was back in Indonesia you were writing the yes, sitcom yeah. for. So that's yeah. right around the time uh, for, for the setting of Jakarta Job, the that's book right. that I, I just flew, read yeah, it, I 1998, back. 99. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. Yeah. But let's go back in time a little bit, I All think, right. to, to 1979, okay. when... Um, Funnily enough, that's around the time that my dad also went on a big trip down to South America, who you know. And, uh, uh, that, no, uh, that was a bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, around the same era, though. So what I'm wondering is, was, was there just something in the air around that time that people were just packing up and leaving, leaving country and going on all these kind of big trips? High wages, cheap travel. Mm. Yeah, especially South America, it simply became the thing to do. Your dad was like two years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And my first trip was just a few months. I went down with some friends from Capilano College to study liberation theology in Peru. That was the big thing. That was radical priests of the of the Catholics, you know, you know, setting themselves, you know, as uh, as sort of minor league Che Guevara's. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, right. So um, we went down. Uh, we went down to do that, and and just one day walking along Cusco in this mountain town, this sort of tourist mountain town in Peru, I just walked by your dad. Say hi, Phil. <laughs> because I knew he was down there. He had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, no internet, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no Facebook nothing. check-in. No, yeah. no, no, no. It, it, it was a compl- you know, this was 40 years ago. I mean, there was absolutely no way of knowing that I would, that I would be down. I, mean, I hadn't seen him for two years. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just walking, and I, I knew he was going to be around there somewhere. So I just walked, hi, Phil. And he just, and he just looked, and you know how emotional he gets. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. He's an animated yeah. guy. Okay, yeah, right. So he just went ballistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I expect, yeah. So how did you end up in Indonesia, though, which is where you've spent most of the time in the last 30, 40, 40 years, years, I guess. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, so I came back from that trip. Well, that trip, I ended up in, in Spain, in school, in uh, university for a year, studying, uh, studying colonial history um, to sort of put an academic rigor into all that I'd learned in traveling through South America. Came back in, in 78 and then just took whatever job was available. Ended up in Alberta, in the oil fields, uh, working in geophysical surveying as uh, what was called a jug hustler. A jug, jug hustler. hustler? A jug hustler, <laughs> yes, right. I, I was the, okay, the, um, if you know anything about geophysical surveying, it's, it's basically you blow up something, the shock waves go down to the rock levels and bounce up and they're recorded on, on microphones that are, that are buried in the soil. Yeah. So, right, so I was the guy laying the microphones. Okay. Yeah, right, yeah, they're 23 years old. Mm-hmm. So, did that for, uh, for a season, we made enough money to go, to go traveling again. But during that time, I happened to, you know, one, one, of the, one of the guys I was hanging out with in the work camp, who was an actual, you know, professional technician, had come back from Indonesia the year before and had told me all about it. And especially saying that, you know, here I'd be just a laborer, there I'd be the boss. Right. I'd, be, I'd be the guy out in the field. Kind of planted the bug for you. Yeah, right. So, so it was money, your fame and fortune that brought you to <laughs> Indonesia. Um, no, it... It was just curiosity, mm-hmm. but you know I planned to go around the world, planned to go to India, but but I took the guy's advice and uh, you know he he gave me the name and number of a uh, of a Canadian company doing surveying in Indonesia. So I walked into the office in Singapore and said hi and 
and explained what I was doing and everything. And, uh, and he said, yes, we are looking for anybody. Because that, that was the time of the, uh, uh, the various OPEC-driven uh, uh, waves of, of, of high prices. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, windfall profits. You know, the oil companies were getting quadruple the profits and doing nothing to earn it. So the, so the American government was, was uh, they wanted to tax it away, but they were only going to tax profit. So the oil companies took all the extra revenue they were getting and plowed it back into exploration. Mm -hmm. So basically they mapped the entire earth at the time. Wow. Uh, and, and they were stretched to the limit. So they were hiring anybody, and they were, um, especially in Indonesia, uh, since, you know, to do the job is, you know, in the forest, running herd over, a, over up to 400 local laborers. So these aren't on platforms. This is in the, this is in in the, the, in the jungle. This is in the jungle. On land. This, this oh, is in the jungle, yeah. Indonesia right. is oh. very island-based, yes. a lot of water. Yeah. I, yeah. I, so I assumed it was platforms. Yeah, no, so I was in Borneo. Oh, yeah, I was, yeah it, uh, Kalima, East Kalimantan. Deep in the jungle. It, uh, not quite deep, actually. It was only, um, it was, it was only about a 10-minute helicopter ride from the, <laughs> from the base. But yes, that, that, that was deep enough. Right. And I was the boss. So I was responsible for, I uh, started off with like 20, 30 people, ended up being 400 uh, wow. after I'd been there a couple of years. So when I was there, and I was living in, actually in the forest, in a, basically a tent, in a, a very nice tent, but a, but a tent nonetheless, mm. for uh, four weeks and then rotated out to, uh, to Singapore or Bali, whatever, for two weeks. Um, and so there's a lot of time to, to read. I hit, I hit the second-hand bookstores in, uh, in Singapore, and I would, one, of the, one of the first books I started reading was Joseph Conrad, mm. uh, Elmire's Folly, Outcast of the Islands, Victory. And I'd be sitting there, you know, with the, the hurricane lamp, the, you know, the Petromax kerosene lamp, you know, the sound of the crickets around me, my crew, you know, just sleeping in, a, in, in barracks just off to the side. And I'd, I'd, I'd look up, you know, read the book of what happened 100 years before, then look up around me and say, things haven't changed much, have they? <laughs> no. W one thing that I'm wondering, um, and this would be no stranger to you knowing, uh, studying colonialism, that uh, Indonesia had suffered tremendously under colonialism. What was it like being the white boss of, you know, hundreds of local Indonesians? Were you a very popular guy? Well, was now it a you very difficult situation. That is, uh, I, I came there at exactly the right time. Because since the 60s, you know, it, Indonesia really, uh, okay, so the colonial era ended just after the Second World War, after the Pacific War. Uh, Indonesia, the vacuum of the well, Japanese. It, yes, Indonesia mm. fought for their independence. But then, for, for various reasons, the economy stagnated and the natural resources were underexploited for the next uh, 15 years. And then came the, uh, uh, you know, the troubles, the genocide mm. in, uh, in 1965. But when the new government came in in 68, they opened Indonesia to international investment. That was the Suharto government. Suharto, the, yes. the Suharto government, especially the oil industry, oil and mines. So all these companies came in, and basically they were neo-colonialists. In a lot of senses, they had to be because there was simply nobody else around who could do the work. Any one of the, the European-trained technicians had mostly decided to uh, leave Indonesia and make a new life in Europe uh, during the troubles of the 50s and 60s. So there was a lot of, you know, very, very dedicated, hardworking labor, but no skilled people whatsoever, very few skilled people. So the American, the American, Canadian, European companies just moved in. The foreign experts ran the show, and the Indonesians were just, were just the laborers. Mm. But then after 10 years, more and more Indonesia, you know, they started, you know, uh, Indonesia, like everybody else, but especially when you're being forced to, Indonesians learn very quickly and, you know, you know, are very quick to pick up on things. Yeah, of course. Right. And uh, 
by the time I got there, there'd come a, a coterie of, you know, e you know e enough of a body of experts, you know, of technical experts, to take over the jobs that were being done by the, uh, by the foreigners. And so the government instituted a program called Indonesianization, Indonesianization, where they tried to push more and more uh, of these sort of lower level technical jobs, you know, towards the towards the Indonesians mm. and uh, and send the, uh, the send the foreigners back home. That didn't really affect me because my job wasn't technical. Right. My job was simply to be the eyes and ears on the ground. Mm. And for that, they needed a foreigner, uh, someone who was completely disinterested in the sense of not being tied to a family, not being tied to a company, not being tied to a political party, not being tied to the army. So I could, I could report and advocate on behalf of, of my workers, you know, who were being exploited or, uh, or ignored or, or pushed around or whatever. So uh, the Indonesians, uh, especially the technical people, were getting more self-confident. People like me could no longer rely on our whiteness, on our white skin. We had to do something else. So because I was a backpacker and I spent, you know, years in um, South America and, uh, you know, Spain and, and everything, I then tried to get as close as I could, you know, to understanding the, you know, my, my crew, where they came from, what, you know, uh, what motivated them, but still having the, you know, still maintaining the dignity of the boss, which was very difficult in, uh, especially with the crew, uh, the crews I was looking for. I was working with the Boogies, the maritime tribe who were the pirates of the Eastern Archipelago, a very proud people. Recently employed pirates. Uh, well, uh, they're still employed, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> they're still pirates. They're still yeah, pirates, yeah, yes. Right. Right. You, know, I mean, you know, they were very proud people, so you had to be very careful not to offend them. And in fact, I was told that if, uh, if one of them snapped, which, which happens all the time, and pulls a knife on me, I had to stand there and just hope there was somebody behind me, because if I turned and ran, nobody would help me. Out of respect, yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, right. No, I had to, you know, I had to actually sit there and stare the guy down. Did that right. happen? Yes. Like more right. than once? Yeah. No. Well, just just the once. <laughs> that's, just a, the that's once. enough, though. Just the once, and. But you didn't run away. I didn't yeah. run away. No, <laughs> okay. and then and then uh, and I, you know, it was, I think it was just like 15, 20 seconds, and then all of a sudden, like, I, or two people rush behind me, and grab the guy, and haul him away. If I had turned and run, they wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hmm. So yeah. So the, you know. So that was the end of the colonial period. Mm. Uh, you know, and I, and I still ran into vestiges of resentment against Europeans. The first article I wrote was about finding an orangutan. You know, a uh, orangutan. Ah, oh, there we go. Orangutan. <laughs> Thank, yeah. you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, you know, e even then they were uh, it, the. The laws against, you know, they, they just become an endangered species. This was 1981. Right. And I was told that the, um, especially the people in, in the area, you know, which was full of orangutans, mm. yeah, they knew that they could get a lot of money for a baby. So they would shoot the mother and then grab the baby. Yeah. So I was told... To sell the to to, to sell the baby to, to you know to circuses to, or wait, no, no, science I, no um, no 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 um, as a as a house pet for rich people in Jakarta and Surabaya. Wow! Did you yeah. see lots of those when you were living in Jakarta? Yes. Okay. Exotic well, pets? Uh, yeah. Well, no. By the time I got there, I have seen them, but they were totally illegal, and no, there aren't any. And now there aren't any more. Is it even that exotic if it lives in Indonesia? They're in Indonesia. Um, well, yeah. Well, uh, 
to us, no. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 You know, so I was, I was told if I see, uh, if they're trying to sell me an Orang Hutan, just walk away and let it die. Because mm-hmm. if I buy it, that means you're just going to go out and shoot another one. Right, of course. Right. Yeah. So, creating the market. Yeah, for exactly. It. Yeah. yeah, I just be. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah. So when I, I was walk. in Bali, people were selling monkeys yes. on, on leashes on the beach, along with crossbows yes. and yeah. tasers. Yeah. And people were buying them too. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that's yeah. one stall. That's no. well, they're a mobile <laughs> stall walking up and yeah. down the beach. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, walking through a village, and there was this three-month-old orangutan in a beer crate, in an empty beer crate. Clutching a you know a uh, a rice bag you know a a, a, so, a dirty rice bag and right. then just staring at me like this, and I said how much? Oh, you bought an orangutan. I bought it. Oh no, <laughs> I bought oh, no. an orangutan. Rule number one. Okay, yes, yeah. right. I know. I just couldn't. All right. So, um, you know, but I knew I'd have to give it up. Of I mean, course. Yeah. Of course. <clears throat> yeah. Right. So, and what was starting then was uh, I mean, orangutan schools when they confiscated an orangutan that had been sold as a baby, you know, it had never lived in the forest, you know, knew nothing about how to be an orangutan. So a Canadian, Burute Galdikas, uh, started up this school in, uh, in, in Kalimantan where she would take these orangutans and train them. Hmm. I thought I'd, I'd give my little orangutan, Rimbani. Rimbani, that Rimbani, was his name? Which, yeah, his name, <laughs> Michang, it means forest. Right. People, person of the forest. Uh, a little head start by, by training him myself. Okay. Okay. You know, how to climb a tree. Okay. Right. Sorry. <laughs> Did you demonstrate? Yeah. Well, well, no, because uh, you know, I'd go up to, uh, to you know, orangutans. You know, th- they cling to their mothers for seven years. So I became the mother. She just clung to me. You had a little fuzzy backpack. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So uh, front pack actually. Just front pack. <laughs> yeah, got right you. Like this. Of okay. So I thought I'd better, um, you know, start teaching Rimbani how to climb a tree. So I'd, I'd go over to a tree, and then. You know, take one hand and put it on. The, you take another hand, but of course, orangutans have four hands. You know, mm-hmm. I would always lose. <laughs> so, I managed to pry him off. Uh, you know, put him down, and then ran, and I climbed the tree. You know, I said, you know, thinking he would, he'd come to me and have to climb the tree himself. And uh, I said, come on, Ramadi, come on, come on, just like this. And I'd be grabbing the, uh, grabbing the branch. Come on, just like this, just like this. Was so anyone w- watching you while this is w- happening? W- yeah, so, okay, okay well, he, he, Rimbani was just sort of standing, looking at me and with, quizzically, you know, sort of wondering what to do next. And then Herman, one of the Indonesian technicians, you know, who really, you know, who, who really believed, and he was, he was very good. So, I mean, that, that he was exactly the peer of, a, uh, of his uh, European-American counterparts, you know, and had a wicked wit about him. He would walk by, look at, he looked at Rimbani, looked at me, looked at Rimbani and said, you bloody foreigners, you even think you have to teach an ape how to climb a tree. That's funny. So how did you end up uh, in, in, uh, in Java, though, after that? Okay. Um, it, you know, as I was... Uh, and did you bring uh, the monkey with you? No, 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 absolutely not. No. I mean, that, 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 was, that, that, was like, that was the whole thing. About a few months later, I was I was transferred out to another uh, to to Sumatra, so I'd made arrangements to take Rimbani, and give him to a uh, to a vet, you know, who then he'd check me to, for tuberculosis and stuff, and then be given to a uh, orangutan rehabilitation camp. So you know we had like a tearful goodbye and everything, but you know, and and it was also heartwarming that it, that I wrote a story about it. And which was then published in a uh, in, in a regional magazine. It was a it was the magazine that was part of the Sunday supplements 
for uh, for the English language newspapers in the East Asia re region. At that right. point, were you fluent <laughs> in Indonesian? Yeah, I'm sure yeah, there's lots of different yeah, dialects. Yeah, with yeah okay, names, right? yeah, pre yeah, yeah. Uh, pretty much. So by the time I, uh, when the oil industry collapsed, when the uh, oil prices collapsed in '82, uh, you know, and I was uh, I was let go. I, everybody didn't let go. I think I walked away anyway. Mm -hmm. That story and a couple of others were being published. And I thought, well, you know, I wanted to be, you know, in, instead of just continuing around the world and sort of showing up in Canada in another year broke, why don't I try to make a career as a writer? And so I, uh, you know, I moved down to Java, uh, got a nice house in the, uh, in the hills uh, north of Bandung, and started to write. So the orangutan kind of led you to your first writing gig, yes. if I'm understanding correctly? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. A very fated encounter. Yes, that's right. <laughs> So in Jakarta, Jav, you, you mentioned a lot of micro-divisions within Indonesian society, the kind of ethnic Chinese, Javanese, Balinese, that can only really be broken with the presence of a greater outsider. That would be yourself most of the time, I imagine. Um, I'm just wondering what the, how serious those divides are. It can be very serious. Yeah. And the, um, the genius of, of creating you know, the, the nation of Indonesia was to recognize those differences, but to emphasize the realization that the superficial differences in, in culture, in, you know, in behavior, in religion, are vastly overshadowed uh, or made insignificant by the fundamental similarities. It's, it's basically like, like being a Canadian. I mean, you know, I have very little in common with a, with, with a Newfoundlander, for example, or somebody from Nova Scotia, or somebody from Manitoba. But we're all nice. That's We're true. all tolerant. <laughs> we have that reputation, at least. Well, no, and it's true. It's absolutely true. Mm. Um, you know, so I mean, that's what makes us Canadian. I mean, I, I can't. You know, I don't like hockey. I can't quite understand it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've only had poutine like twice in my life. That's good for your heart, <laughs> right? Break, yeah, right. Um, but every Canadian I've ever met is nice. You know, is nice and tolerant. You know, so and so Indonesia is much the same thing. Is that know? a reputation that we have abroad as oh, well over there? Oh, Cause I, I know oh, it, oh, in oh, Europe and sort of Australia, more Westernized countries, that's a stereotype. But I'm wondering if that is, has traveled. Yeah. Quite okay. As far. Okay. Well, you know, so as Russell Peters says, you know, I don't make up the stereotypes; you just repeat them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it, but it, yeah, but it's true. Um, uh, you know, people recognize that I'm Canadian, not American. They can tell the difference. Uh, well, the accent, no, just no. The when I tell them, when I when I, you okay. know, when I tell them, and mm -hmm. you know, they, they realize that there is a there is a Canada, and we act differently from Americans. Yeah, I used to get upset when I was traveling, and people would assume I'm American. But then I looked at the sort of there's 250 million Americans mm -hmm. and something like 35, 36 yeah. million Canadians. Yeah. Statistically speaking, if I talk like this, I'm probably American. Okay. So you can't really get that mad about it. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're remember, you, get a you know, bigger flag on your backpack. There yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, remember in the in the you know in the 70s. I mean, that was the whole thing with the maple leaf on the backpack. Yeah. So people but, fake it too. Yeah, you know, well, no, especially oh, yeah. especially traveling through Europe. I, you know, I, I would always look around for the maple leaf on the backpack, and so I know to avoid that person as an American. Oh, really? A phony. A phony. Yeah. yeah. Just ask him what the capital Show me your passport. Of, our, of our country is. Trana. Yeah, Trana. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so to take a bit more of a serious note, uh, you, you write extensively in your book about... Um, uh, the 1998 riots around the fall of Saharto. Yes. Uh, one thing that struck out to me was there was a lot of um, violence and, and rapes, uh, particularly of ethnic Chinese women, 
And um, you write about a woman named Aita who was murdered in her home just before she was about to testify in an international investigation of these rapes. Mm -hmm. And um, the kind of subtext of that is that maybe the government or maybe the military was involved in that. No, no maybe about it. No maybe about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because they found they found they arrested a suspect from what it what it sounds like he was a bit of a patsy. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean that was uh, I I didn't really get into that too much. Yeah. In, I was uh, I it, thought that was going to be the whole book when it, yeah. when he started go run no, traveling it. No. No. Because that's actually more uh, reporting. That's journalism. And especially when you get into a story like that, you say, okay, you know, it, it's uh, it's impossible really to understand the, you know to know the truth. You know there. In Indonesia, because, because so few things are written down, there's so few authoritative written documents, and, uh, you know, except in the case of, uh, say, land registry and stuff. The whole idea of an objective truth is not foreign, but it just doesn't have quite the weight that it does here. So when I was writing these books, and this is why it's, cre it's, it's creative nonfiction, I mean, every, everything that I, you know, that I write that's on the public record is true. But, but I take, not, a, not liberties, but I sort of, you know, take the events and try to put them in a context. Uh, with a narrative. With, with a narrative. With characters. Yeah, with characters and yeah. that. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, okay, so for example, yeah, the, the whole rape thing. It, it, it was all he said, she said, that, you know, there was, uh, there was absolutely no proof, there was nothing. There was only, like, this feeling. So of the rapes at all? Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I mean, nothing's proved. Yeah, because yeah. I, I right before we had the interview today, I, I, I read a couple articles about it, and there was yeah. def definitely at okay. least the, the number was ten thousand dead. There, I saw a massive range in the death toll, and but one very consistent one hundred and thirty-eight uh, reported rapes. Yeah, reported. That's true. Yeah. 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 Okay. There, there are probably a lot more than that. So, so in in Jakarta Jive, one of the stories that I tell is about this ethnic Chinese woman, Chinese, Chinese heritage woman, uh, who joins a photography class as the only uh, Chinese heritage person there. You know, after, you know, and, you know, she knew people who had been raped and, you know, and, you know, like, like aunts and, uh, you know, from like the whole community and that. So, you know, and, and she knew that as investigative journalism, nothing was ever going to happen. So she wanted to turn it into art, and for that, she enlisted my help. Uh, you know, she yeah, yeah she wanted to do some so you know she she'd taken the it, she'd managed to get you know permission to you know interview some of these uh, you know victims, and was so you know was astounded when some of the women actually stripped down. You know, it was it was only her there. Mm. And in fact, you know the uh, the aid guy who, uh, who who set the whole thing up, he he like disappeared, and you know, so it was just the two of them and. You know, so yeah, so she was able to actually to photograph, but but she, but actually didn't know what to do, what to do with it. She asked for my help, and uh, and then I I listened to it. But then, as as I wrote in the book, Monica was her name was Monica. Monica was upset to hear of my reluctant decision not to publish the results of our investigations. We must do something, Monica pleaded. Everyone will just forget. I did not repeat Pat Trisno's observation that people would forget anyway. Not wanting to meet her gaze, I studied a historical montage of campus photographs and newspaper clippings on the opposite wall. I smiled at the decade-old headlines, reliving my own memories of the period. That gave me an idea. 
I suggested that Monica create her own photo montage by juxtaposing her self-documentation images with other print materials. As I gave her a few ideas, I saw Monica's eyes light up for the first time in weeks. Monica decided to produce her montage on computer video, asking my assistants to alter and animate the images. I enjoyed not having to be creative for once, concentrating only on developing the techniques for translating her vision into a dynamic montage. I discovered that a sophisticated sense for moving composition complemented Monica's talented eye for framing still images. Our first effort depicted the environment where the rapes occurred, but did little to illustrate the soul-wrenching depravity of the act itself, which Monica needed to convey if her work was to have lasting impact. Swearing me to secrecy, Monica showed me her photographs of rape victims. We agreed that they should be included, but only, of course, if we could conceal the women's identities. I helped Monica digitally dismember the rape victims, allowing her to use the haunted eyes, the mouths pursed in pain, the burns and jagged scars on limbs and torsos. The more shocking images appeared for only an instant, already gone by the time the viewers realized they had seen mutilated genitalia. The resulting video was better than either Monica or I had expected. By using dismembered body parts as fleeting images, barely glimpsed, Monica expressed the ultimate degradation of rape, the reduction of women to disjointed components to be used and discarded with casual cruelty. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, regarding Ita and that Ita. whole thing. Ita. 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 Regarding Ida, and um, at another point in the, in the book, you, you interview a, uh, a guy who claims that military police were paying drug addicts to burn down rival families' businesses and stuff like that. And there's some question whether or not the military was involved in these rapes. W what's your take on that? Do you um, think they were? Yes. At, the, at yeah. which level? Was this like, you know, soldiers acting out or was this a... Uh, the, yeah, the famous um, uh, rogue commanders, uh, you know, like uh, captains and majors who, uh, who operated out, outside the chain of command. And uh, you know, and that actually is a uh, is a is a common excuse. You know, you, you ask you ask one of the generals. You know, uh, you, you know, so what, what happened? Say, oh, this was a we, we couldn't do anything. It was a rogue commander. It was it was a rogue captain. You know, operating outside the chain of command, thinking that you know that absolves him of right. any responsibility. You know, instead of being a damning indictment of his failings as a senior commander. Yeah, yeah. not just a quick wash of the hands, yeah. but. <laughs> What, what do you think, though? Do you think it was oh, that? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it wasn't this sort of, you know, sanctioned, secret no, sort no, of no, no, ethnic no, no, cleansing no, sort no, of thing? No, okay. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's just, uh, it, especially in, in today's, you know, supercharged political environment, uh, a, a lot of, you know, uh, they are trying to pin, you know, responsibility on some senior political, you know, military figures, now senior political figures. But no, there's no proof. There's nothing. Yeah. As, as I was reading earlier today, the, the, it's still in the courts, a lot of the cases for the rapes, the rapes specifically. Well, yeah. It's still, it's still in the courts. Uh, yeah. And probably will be for some time. Yeah. I imagine. Well, I mean, yeah. I can't see any reconciliation for another generation, at least. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you ended up working as a journalist for a little while over there. 
you write about something called the Ministry of Truth or the Department <laughs> of Truth. Just a bit Orwellian. Oh, okay, that was a uh, that, that was a wry joke. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, by, yeah, yeah. Yeah, by a friend of mine. But there was a department because you write around yeah, going, oh, going oh, through right. the halls oh, and oh, dealing with the okay, bureaucrats. Okay, okay. Well, the, the the Indonesian language, the way that it's built, is you have like a root word, and then you start adding prefixes and suffixes and makes it more and more abstract. Okay, so the word is is terang, which means light, like that, like, like, yeah, yeah, like that light is terang. It's it's bright, but you know you sort of add stuff, uh, you know, and 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 it, and it becomes you know more abstract. So the, the name for the department was the uh, department of department Panorangan. And the word Panorangan, because of all the, all the, uh, uh, the prefix and suffixes, is not, doesn't mean light anymore, it means enlightenment. So that, yeah, and, and of course, enlightenment you know, is a synonym for absolute truth. So it was the department of absolute truth. Right. And they did nothing but lie. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. It, it sounds like... Um, at least in the early days, uh, oftentimes you were sent with minders from the Department of Absolute Truth who would try to make, as, as you put it, make sure nothing negative about Indonesia was captured. That's right. How uh, did they get in your way a lot? In, in the mid-80s, a good, uh, a good friend of mine uh, was, a, was a filmmaker named John Darling who, you know, uh, who translated uh, Bali for Australians. You know, uh, you know, he was the expert on uh, on Balinese culture and society. You mean turning it into documentary kind of films? Okay. Yeah, right. He was he, he was a documentary filmmaker uh, with a with a great body of work. So, in the eighties. So uh, he's to blame with the Australian takeover. Oh, oh no, 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 he is, he, <laughs> no. He is. Um, you know. Uh, what, you know. One of the. He was one of the people fighting the good fight. Okay. Yeah. So you know. So, so for his films, he, he would ask me to uh, to tag along and help out. And my job was usually to distract the minder whenever they wanted to get, you know, e e e even such a thing as a, as a woman bathing in the, uh, you know, in, in a public stream, right. uh, which, which, you know, which, which they wouldn't want. I would have to, like, distract the minder by taking him off somewhere else where they, well, they got the shot. Huh, interesting. Yeah. You, you also write about um, the kind of religious tensions. We talked about sort of different ethnic groups, but uh, it is uh, Indonesia's 85% Muslim. Is that right? That's the kind of statistic that I look at on. Yes, you know. Yeah, yeah. But however, um, there was a lot of Christian sort of missionary schools that were kind of left over from the, the colonial period that were extremely well-funded that made it so a lot of the kind of top tiers of society in the military business world were Christian while the uh, kind of average citizen was uh, either, either Hindu or Muslim. Does that create a lot of sort of conflicting interest Absolutely. and, uh, and, and, and um, yeah. resentment, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. because they put some of the ethnic groups, the, the Batak from Sumatra, who are largely Christian, the ethnic Chinese, who are, uh, who are also largely Christian and benefit from, uh, from at least business, you know, so business schools and, and, and a business-oriented education. Especially in the, by the time the 80s came around, the, the military, the diplomatic corps, and, uh, and a lot of other levels of government, there was a disproportionate number of Christians. Yeah. So that fueled a, a resentment amongst the, uh, the Muslim population. But in a sense, but, but the real dividing line, the real, uh, you know, is, is not between like the Muslims and the Christians and the, and the Hindus and whatever. It's between the fundamentalist and the moderate Muslims. Because 
Islam in Indonesia, especially in, uh, especially in Java and Sumatra, was brought by the Sufis, was brought by the, uh, by the traders, by proselytizers, by preachers, by clerics coming in with the, with the trading ships in the, uh, in the 16th and 17th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And so, the, and then, you know, as Sufis, you know, they, make, they, were, uh, they were able to uh, mix in the, you know, their, uh, you know, their beliefs with the, the Hindu and animist beliefs of the uh, of Sumatra and, and Java especially to, uh, to create what, was basic, what, what, what is now called Islam Nusantara, which is largely different, distinct from the, the Islam of the Middle East or for that, or for that matter even the Islam of, of Malaysia. Yeah, kind of yeah. like Catholicism in South America. Yes, exactly. Very, it, very different it, from it, European. Exactly. Yes. Right. It's um, uh, you know, Islam Nusantara is like an onion. You know, you get the animism, then you get Hinduism, and then uh, and then Islam on top of that, uh, and famously tolerant. Uh, you, you know, I mean, I I would go to. Um, uh, you, you know, to, to you know, like weddings and stuff. I, you know, I I, I joined prayers, and it was uh, it was chanting. You know, it was just like a, it was like a transcendental experience. Um, so I mean, so when you talk about the eighty five percent Muslim, you know, Muslims, you know, I don't know, maybe like you know, fifty sixty percent of that is uh, Islam Nusantara. Yeah. But their voices are being completely overshadowed, completely drowned out. By the by, the Saudi-funded fundamentalists, the Wahhabis right. and the Salafis, and all of that, who are driving a political agenda. That has been happening in Indonesia for two hundred years. Yeah, I, I imagine when the Sufis were, were coming to doing trading routes to Indonesia in the sixteen hundreds, it may have been a bit of an easier sell than the sort of Christianity being sort of yeah. propagated by the like Dutch colonial yeah, masters. Yeah. You know, okay. well, well, actually, no. Uh, the, the reason why it was an easy sell, especially in the uh, in the coastal trading states, which, which is where Islam, uh, you know, you know, really got its foothold, was because the Dutch and the and the and the British. You know, decided in the uh, in the 16th century that they would only deal with sultans, like like you know the uh, like Sumatra, Borneo, Sulawesi. Um, you had the great hinterland, you know, the forest mm. uh, with uh, with the gold, with the, you know the wild honey, various resins from the trees, which were very very valuable. They would be brought down, uh, you know, through the rivers to coastal to coastal trading sites, and um, you know, and, and then ships would come in like once every couple of years and deal with these guys, you know, and, and trade and then take the stuff away. And uh, but then you know, there was always a problem. You, you know, these people never know who they were dealing with. You know, uh, they say, "We'll come back with you know in two years with this amount. We want this, this, and this." Nothing would happen. So they found out that those. Um, you know, the, those coastal states, you know, the, the mouths of rivers who'd adopted Islam were much easier to deal with because the local king, uh, you know, who then became the local sultan, he always, he had to learn about Islam. So he got one of these guys off the, uh, one of these Sufi guys off the trading ships and to teach Islam. 
and and so that person, you know, from the, you know, a lot of them were from, were from Yemen. So they took it willingly. They sought it out. No, very much so because, but besides learning you know, how to do the prayers and everything, mm -hmm. they would also be taught Islamic jurisprudence, orders of succession, how to resolve commercial disputes. Mm -hmm. So anybody showing up, you know, and dealing with the sultan knew what to expect. It's standardized. Yeah. It's standardized. Yeah, it's you know, and, if, and if they showed up five years later, the old sultan yeah. had died, they already knew which one of his sons would be the new sultan. Yeah. They already knew him and could deal with him. Yeah. So it just made things so much easier. And then all these other, you know, all, all these other trading states, they, um, the, the petty kings, they realized, oh, well, this guy's getting all the business. So why don't I become a sultan as well? Mm, commercial yeah. interests. Exactly. It was just. It was just economic lubricant. Yeah. <laughs> was, That's was, interesting. Just, yeah. It's just the money. Yeah. Yeah. From all I've learned about Islam, uh, it was kind of because it, it's still an Abrahamic religion, like like Judaism, like like Christianity. They believe in the sort of Old Testament and those books. But Islam was created, from my understanding, as a kind of response to the vagueness of Christianity. They wanted not only a religion but a system of governance to go along with it, which is yeah. kind of. The very yeah, controversial right. yeah, Sharia I mean, yeah, law, well, which has many in, in, okay. incarnations. Yeah. Okay, well, Islam is very, especially in Indonesia, is very much a civilizing influence. Always mm -hmm. has been. Mm -hmm. yeah. they, from, from what I've read in your book, they're very um, peaceful people. They, 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 seek, they seek compromise in terms of the way they carry themselves. That has nothing to do with Islam. No. It's all the, uh, just what Indonesians are all about. You know, it's one of the fundamental you know, characteristics of the people of the New Centaur Archipelago was that they, is that they do seek compromise. You know, they just want to get along. And so, you know, the Christians, uh, the Hindus, they all exactly, they all exactly the same way. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the, 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 the point that I was getting from your book, that it's a story of a fledgling democracy, widely diverse, that's really just trying to figure out what it means to be an independent country, yeah. despite all these sort of... Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's trying to, yeah, it's trying to figure out what it means to be a nation. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about uh, briefly is um, police corruption. Uh, I know that so much... In, in, oh, my favorite subject. Yeah, great, great. <laughs> I'm sure you have <laughs> maybe a lot to say about it, but uh, I, I know in uh, other places in Southeast Asia, like Thailand, Vietnam, um, bribery is... Um, like my friend described a, a, an incident where he had to bribe a police officer, and it, 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 according to him, it felt as normal as passing through a toll booth. Like it's just sort of a part of the way the economy and justice system works over there. Uh, can you speak to that in yeah, Indonesian terms? Yeah, it, yes, the same way? it is um, alternate financing of essential public services. Yeah. <laughs> okay. right. So in in Bali Blues, uh, you know, when I, uh, after the Bali bomb, uh, I would. Um, my friends there asked me to stay, to live in Bali for a year. I was, I was actually only, gonna, only going there, you know, just after the bomb, uh, to help out with my friend John Darling, who was making a film about it. And then after that was all finished, he, you know, all my friends asked me to stay and write stories about Bali, saying that it's safe to come back. You know, that it's, uh, everything's over, it's, it's all safe. You know, just you know, to build up the, uh, the, the image of Bali in the, uh, you know, uh, uh, at least among the travel industry. Mm -hmm. One of the ways they did that um, was the, uh, the police set up what was called the Baywatch Patrol. It was policemen on the beach. It was half police, half PR, and they would be actually on the beach in little bicycles and a, little, and a golf cart, you know, going back and forth along the beach, being, you know, being very, uh, in, in, you know, being very visible, you know, and friendly and, and the whole thing. So I was, I was like the unofficial uh, advisor to them, you know, how to approach 
uh, how to approach two is to introduce yourself. Say, yeah. you know, I'm I'm the police. I'm here to protect you. Right. Yeah. Stuff like that. Yeah. So they are, they're also very idealistic. So one of the things they did was they, they decided they didn't want to be corrupt. Being the Baywatch Patrol, you know, on the beach, they all wear short pants. They got you know cargo shorts. Uh, it's very know, hot. Khaki shorts. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. No. I mean, they were dressed the part. You yeah. know, they were dressed for the beach. So short pants. Yeah. So they all got together, and you know, there was about fifty of them, and and they said. Okay, we, everyone in short pants, you know, uh, w you know, we take an oath not to be corrupt for a year. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so they did that. No one ever breaks uh, oh, oaths. Okay. Oh, okay, a few months into <laughs> it, they realized just how difficult that was going to be. Right. I mean, on a, on, a, on, a, on a basic police salary. I mean, they had school fees coming up. They had uh, medical expenses. They had this, they had that. Life. Right. <laughs> yeah. so, so one of the guys came up with an idea. He organized a side job for him and his friends. So he was explaining it to me. I, I said, what's the uh, side job? He said, he said, oh, I'm selling stuff for Amway. Really? Yeah. What's, what's Amway? <laughs> Multi-level marketing. Like pyramid scheme selling vitamin, stuff. It was a pyramid scheme. Like supplements oh, and oils. Yeah, and right, yes, <laughs> exactly. It was, it was a pyramid Run scheme. Run the other way. Yeah, 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 right, okay. So I said, oh, I see. Well, that sounds like a good idea, but I've got an even better idea. Um, why don't you guys, you know, go down to the end of the street and set up a roadblock, and any and any tourist who comes through, stop them and ask them for two hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how, how much is that in Canadian dollars? Twenty dollars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that sounds like exorbitant amount. So you also have a new book coming out as well. Maybe we could talk about that for a little bit before we sign off here. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. It's a book that's been thirty years in the making. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, most of your time there. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Nineteen eighty-six. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the sort of political landscape that led to this guy, Bob, Bob Freeberg. Bob Freeberg, yes. Yeah, the sort of having the opportunity to go over there. What, 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 was, the, what was the situation like in Indonesia and why, why was it as such for the listeners who probably don't know the history? Right. At, at, the, at the Japanese surrender in 1945, the British weren't around. The, of course, the Americans weren't around. Uh, there was a complete power vacuum in the, in the East Indies, uh, in, the, in the Indonesian archipelago. So... The Japanese had been supporting nationalist, you know, nationalist movement, nationalist leaders uh, all, th all through the occupation. So the so the nationalists, led led by Sukarno and Muhammad Hatta and uh, and a few others, they just stepped right in and they formed a government. They, uh, you know, right in September 1945, the the British came in around that time. They didn't try to keep order or anything. They were mainly concerned with with evacuating, you know, the European prisoners of war. So the Indonesians were basically in, in control of uh, most of the archipelago until the Dutch showed up in force in, uh, in, in January of 1946, at which point they retreated to the town that I live in now, uh, Yogyakarta in central Java. So uh, for the next three years, the, uh, the Dutch did all they could to strangle the new republic at birth by blockading Yogyakarta and the other uh, centers of Republican influence, uh, physically by restricting food and, uh, and, and communication and that, and also by mounting a, uh, a defamation campaign you know, in, on the world stage, calling the nationalist leaders basically brigands, or basically borderline criminals, or, or full-on criminals. Yeah. Okay. So into this whole thing flies uh, Bob Freeberg in his own plane, you know, and, and, he, and he just wants a uh, charter contracts, uh, you know, to fly, fly stuff in and out. So the Indonesians saw, oh, okay, well, here, here's an opportunity. 
they contracted him, you know, to be basically the essential lifeline uh, between the uh, Republic of Indonesia and the rest of the world, uh, 1947, 1948. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe. Um we could talk a little bit about his reasons for doing it. I think we talked about it a little bit at the beach when we met, but yeah. after the war, when Bob went back to the United States, there wasn't a ton of opportunity there waiting for him, partially because priority was given to the married men, men That's with right. children. Right. And I yeah. imagine there was kind of a, it was quite competitive for work right after, right after the war, all the men coming home. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how he ended up in Indonesia, just searching mm -hmm. for opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Reaches. Yeah. I mean, he was, uh, he, he came out to, uh, 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 to the Philippines where, where he had been stationed in the Navy uh, during the war and, and worked for, uh, you know, a, for a charter company. But then he, he quickly got tired of that, you know, just being an employee. So he saved up enough money and bought his own airplane and then flew that airplane down to, uh, down to Indonesia. It was war surplus, so you know, it, was, it had no markings or anything. So for his first flight, you know, the, uh, uh, the Indonesians uh, decided to make that airplane their own, and they gave it their own totally fictitious designation, RI-002, Republic Indonesia-002. 001, they were holding for the, the future presidential airplane. So it was, the, it was the second airplane in the yeah, entire but it, New but Indonesian it was, Air Force. But it was actually the first, yeah. Yeah, yeah. technically. <laughs> right. that, that's okay. funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, so, uh, so, so for the next 16 months, that's what he did. And One Man Air Force, my, my new book, is the memoirs of his co-pilot. Since uh, RI-002 was a, uh, an Air Force plane, or at least, you know, contracted to the Air Force and and flying, what are basically Air Force missions. Uh, they always had to have a an Air Force uh, representative on board as as the ostensible mission leader, and that was the and that couldn't uh, be an American. That couldn't national. be an American. No, yeah. so it, was a, it was an active Air Force officer called Petit Moharto Kartudirjo. Forty years later, he wrote his memoirs. I was asked to uh, to you know uh, they couldn't the family couldn't get the memoirs published, so I was asked to help out. So I basically edited and embellished and, and rewrote a little bit, you know, to make the uh, to make the memoirs, you know, more appealing to an audience, to a readership, you know, right. who knew nothing about Indonesia, um, to make how, it more global. How did the uh, family contact you? Oh well, okay. So 1946. <laughs> so, sorry, 1986. Writing for the Jakarta Post, doing articles for the Jakarta Post. I was asked to write a a story about Bob Freeberg, and so I met Petit Muharto. And uh, and uh, you know did the article, and uh, got it published, and then Muharto loved it so much that he went around and sh it, at the time he was working doing government contracts, mm. so he he went around and showed the article to ministers and director generals and heads of uh, large companies and that, and uh, so yeah, very well about Bob Freeberg, you know, I said who? Nobody knew the story. Uh, he assumed that everybody knew that you know this was basically a foreign national hero. Nobody, right, yeah. nobody knew the story, so um, so Moharto, you know, realized that you know perhaps this you know the story of Bob Freeberg and his contribution to his nation would would follow him to his grave. So he so he sat down and wrote his memoirs, and Freeberg disappeared with a, a cargo of gold in, in September <laughs> really? 19, 1948. So he dove into that mystery, you know, you know, his time with Freeberg and what happened to the mystery and everything surrounding it. 
Reaper picked a good, a good flight to, yes. to depart on. <laughs> yes, right. Okay. And it's, uh, is this, this is covered in your novel? Oh. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, <clears throat> but but how, how I got involved was, uh, was, was the book was finished uh, just in 1998 when the whole publishing industry collapsed. Uh, you know, and, 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 and because uh, what he was writing about was so controversial, like a, a foreigner uh, being, uh, you know, you know, being basically an Indonesian national hero, it had to be written in English, because otherwise, uh, if it was published in Indonesian immediately, it would be, you know, called down, denigrated, you know, as uh, foreign propaganda. Mm. So, but by the time the, by the time Petit Moharto had finished writing the book, you know, the economy collapsed. All the all the foreigners went home. There, you know, he couldn't get it published, and then uh, and then he he passed on at the age of 81 uh, two years later. Mm. Uh, the family couldn't get the uh, thing published, but then. You know, uh, in 2009, I was riding my bicycle from Jakarta to Jogja, five days. And on the third night, I stopped at a beach on the south coast of Java, which I remembered as being the beach where Bob Freeberg had had to make an emergency landing after, after getting lost. Okay. Yeah. You know, so, so I, you know, when I was doing my blog, uh, you know, a, a, couple of, a couple of days later, I knew like a... a from the article, I, I knew photographs of, uh, you know, of him taking off on the beach uh, from an improvised runway of bamboo mats and stuff. So um, I checked the net to see if I could find the uh, the photo. I found one, but it was like terrible quality. Mm. But it had a, it, it had the email address of the person who uploaded it, and so I wrote to him and say, hey, you know, I know Petit Moharto, and you know, do you have a better quality? And uh, and then the guy wrote back and says, how did you know my father? Oh wow! And, yeah, right. And uh, and I said, oh well, you know, because I I wrote the article in 1986 and. Uh, and he said, you're the guy. <laughs> We've been looking for you for years. That's hilarious. So I met him. Uh, in, in, uh, his name is Echo, the, uh, uh, the eldest son. I met him a few, um, a few weeks later. I was back in Jakarta. And, and, and he showed me the book, the manuscript. He said that it, basically I was the one that, that encouraged you know, his father to write the book. Yeah. So he said, it, it's, it, you know, now that we can't get it published, but of course you're a writer, you can, why don't you just take over the project from here? So yes, yeah, so we made a joint copyright deal. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and I took you know, what Petit Moharto had written, and I just massaged it a bit. Right. Right. Okay. What, what I'm wondering is, why did he end up working for this newly formed Indonesian government? Money. There, you could get more money doing that. Could, well, it, I ended up with the cargo hold of gold, it, it, so that makes sense. But it, it, I, I'm wondering how he even ended up there. If there was a blockade, he just flew right by it. And he, he was a blockade runner. That's I guess former military man. Yeah. He, he they knows. were trying to shoot him down. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, I imagine with a cigar and an eye patch. Yeah, just like, exactly. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, um, you know, as the uh, you know, as the months, uh, you know. Uh, you know, the, the deeper he got into it, the more dangerous the whole thing. He became public enemy number one. The Dutch were literally trying to shoot him down, especially when he started running opium. Right. But, yeah. So, uh, no. It, yes. No. Yeah, it is a lot of money. It is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I mean, it, you know, it, it was the Republic's opium. You know, they were they were they were moving the opium and the gold. They were trying. To, uh, they were eventually going to fly to India because India was an ally of Indonesia at the time. Indonesia had just won its independence. Former colony. Former, exactly. Similar yeah. So, history. so the Indians said, "We'll take it all for safe peak. For safe, you know, well, the no, opium. And, and they would o opium. Well, uh, as a sovereign government, uh, you know, you can have opium because uh, that's, that's how you make morphine. That's true. Yeah. yeah there right. Are okay. Big, big right. So, but you know, so as far as the uh, Indonesians were concerned, they were 
a Soviet, you know, as a sovereign government, you know, this is their right. And, and they're trying to sell it on the open market. But until they, the rest of the world, recognize them as, as, as a sovereign government, uh, Bob Freeberg was a classy drug smuggler. <laughs> right. Let's talk a little bit about that process, though, about the sort of way that Indonesia was legitimized on the world stage. Um, do you think it was an uphill battle? Because I imagine that the Dutch, they were a UN sort of member at that point. They must have been very vocal in their sort of, you know, disapproval of these sort of advances to legitimacy. Do you think that, do you think that it was very difficult for them? Or do, was, because uh, post-colonial attitudes in 1940 were still very fresh. I imagine that uh, there wasn't a ton of sympathy in the UN towards uh, this kind of fledgling government. But there was. But there was, because so many members of the UN, like the Philippines and India, uh, they were recently decolonized. So one by one, Indonesia got allies. The first one was the Philippines. And then from there, you know, it was just one step at a time. And uh, so it was partially that, and it was partially the brilliance of the Indonesian founding fathers, like, mm -hmm. like Sudan Shahir, who just went in there and wowed everybody because they had all their facts straight. They had uh, not only the facts, but also morality on their side. You know, they, they, you know they, they, were, they were fighting the good fight. And in fluent English, and Dutch, and French, and just whatever, you know, they made their case. But none of this would have happened would, without Bob Freeberg actually, you know, being the physical way of getting them out of the country. In the one plane. In the one plane. The one yeah. plane they had yeah, in Indonesia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. yeah it's fascinating. I remember you mentioned, uh, and this may have been the same plane, this may have been something else, but they were, they were building aircraft with Harley-Davidson Oh, yeah, engines. okay, well, this, uh, okay. Talk about that. Yeah, this was something else. This was uh, the, only, uh, the only airplanes they had uh, before uh, Bob Freeberg showed up. Were, were Japanese airplanes that had been left behind because they were basically unairworthy. So, but they, they actually did manage to do a bombing run with one of these planes. They used it for observation, but because they realized that, the, uh, that these planes would, you know, that, 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 um, they could fail at any time. Because for one thing, the, all, all the service manuals, you know, the story of the airplane, this, you know, this part was replaced in, they're all written in Japanese. Of course, yeah. yeah right. So, that they had two brilliant engineers, Uweko and Rutanio, who started building airplanes themselves. They started off by building a glider, you know, to train pilots because mm -hmm. they're getting they're getting uh, you know guys from a village who basically never even seen an airplane and trying to get them up in the air. So they built this glider and then pulled it by uh, Uweko's uh, Harley Davidson engine, you know, with a cable across the field. So so they had to like you know. You know, get in the thing, pull it up. You know, get it up so it flies level. You know, and sort of keep it level and everything, and plop it down again after 300 meters. And at that point, they're going to put them in an airplane. Right. Yeah. Extensive uh, training. Yes, extensive, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, and then they took that Harley Davidson engine and then put it in what is basically a glider. You know, with uh, with canvas awning and that, and they actually made a a serviceable you know observation plane. Yeah. You yeah. mentioned a bombing run. What were they yeah. bombing? Oh, uh, Dutch positions, uh, you know. Oh wow! Port. So this was yeah. an active, like, hot yeah. war. Oh, with, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. No, that that was just that was just the one time. Okay. That was just the one time. A couple of the airplanes couldn't even take off. Uh, you know, they failed. But 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 three of them went through, and the actual you know, and and the bombing room was the uh, the navigator was like sitting in the back of the open cockpit, you know, with a bomb in his lap, <laughs> and, and he looked down, and what he thought was the right moment, just lift, to heave it over. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, didn't cause any damage. Nobody was hurt, but it shocked the Dutch. 
said, "Oh my God, what what, what do we got here?" I mean, yeah. these, these just aren't a bunch of ba- uh, a bunch of illiterate bandits. I mean, these people can fly airplanes and everything. I'm mm-hmm. wondering why the Dutch didn't just storm in and take it by force. They, were they in bad shape after the war? Well, I y- imagine. Yes, yes, they were. They did storm in in uh, in July of '47. The Amberawa raid, you know, that raid I was just talking about, that was in response to the Dutch coming in and taking the ports and most of the agricultural land and basically squeezing Joe Jakarta into a very small area, a very small overcrowded area. And then a year and a half later, they in fact did come in and, uh, and take over um, all of the uh, Republican areas and, uh, and arrested everyone. Hmm. And that was the beginning of the end for them because, that, that then got, because world uh, opinion turned against them. So six months later... Uh, they had the UN support. Yeah, exactly, and, yeah. yeah. So, um, my book goes into all of this, uh, but, it, uh, uh, but it's only, um, you know, all from the point of view. Of the co-pilot. Uh, of the co-pilot, yeah, of the co-pilot, yeah. So, and we don't know what happened to Freebird. He, no, he disappeared, never to be seen again. Yeah. yeah. Where's this, this missing girl? He must, he must have crashed. Very sad. <laughs> well, no, they, they found the wreckage. Well. They found the wreckage. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? 30 years later. And was there so gold So he did crash. He did crash. Oh, I think we were all assuming that he just took off the gold. Out yeah. the gold. Yeah, no, no, they. No, uh, no, well. no, no he did crash, uh, but no gold and uh, any body parts after thirty years were unidentifiable. Fair enough. Mm. Yeah. But there was a body in the in the pilot. Well, there were six. Six body. Okay. Yeah. 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 But the co-pilot wasn't there for that run. Oh no, he had been um, promoted to major uh, months before. Very timely promotion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, but all of this is, you know, from the point of view of, of, of Petit Muharto. Early, you know, er, early on in the book, uh, he, t- you know, he talks about his, what is, his second meeting with, with Freeberg. You know, the first one was, uh, dur- was uh, Muharto had organized a blockade run, and Freeberg was the commissioned pilot, you know, uh, you know uh, for the company. And then, and then two months later, Muharto gets a, uh, a telephone call saying this airplane had landed on a beach and the pilot can't speak a word of Indonesian, but all he says is Captain Petit Muharto. Right. <laughs> so Muharto flies out. And this and is the beach where you had that photo. Exactly, yeah. yes, right. Uh, the beach where he has a photo. So he finds out that it is Bob Freeberg. And, uh, and then he has to f- fly him in another airplane back to Georgia. And then they make, the, uh, you know, uh, talk to his commander, the, uh, the, the head of the Air Force. They make the deal. And, and Freeberg says, yes, I want to do this. So they fly back to get the, to get the plane off the beach mm-hmm. and, then, and then into service. So on the way back, they are squeezed into the uh, the back of a um, of, an, of one of these barely serviceable Japanese airplanes, <laughs> right? And a Nishikoran, and, and, and which was a uh, but luckily they had a good pilot in the front seat, uh, which was good because he was only wearing a parachute. And then Freeberg, the only one, <laughs> the only one, and, the, uh, and then Freeberg, and you know, and uh, and uh, Mohartu in the back. So, so he says. We again wedged ourselves into the open rear cockpit, Bob plumping his large flame onto the deck of the aircraft lying flush with the bulkhead, me squatting between his feet face to face. To take my mind off the discomfort during this 30-minute flight, I studied the features of this remarkable foreigner, a cheerful, open face highlighted by sky-blue eyes. These eyes, somehow, were both piercing and kind the eyes of a strict but fair military man who would forgive you any mistake if you made it only once. Bob did not speak during the entire flight. 
as any conversation would scarcely be heard over the roar of the powerful engine and the wind whipping past our ears. But I regarded Bob's reticence as fitting for a person of such extraordinary skill and confidence. Here was a man who had flown his aircraft single-handed on a 15-hour flight to a destination in a foreign country he had visited only once before by a very different route, all the while guided by a chart that showed critical navigational landmarks as mere specks in the ocean. Nevertheless, he could land on an unprepared beach and take off again from an improvised runway, all without much fuss. At the time, I wondered whether he was extraordinarily skilled, incredibly lucky, or just an incurable optimist. In the following months, I would come to realize that he was all three, and more besides. <laughs> when does it come out? It's out now. It's out now. Yeah, well, where, so where can it, people find it? Um, okay. Amazon. It, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's uh, it'll be in the bookstores in Indonesia uh, in uh, in about a week or two, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon in May. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll so just for our uh, North American audience. Yeah. For, yeah. For uh, yeah. For North America and uh, and European audiences. Yeah. And readerships. Right. Uh, where can people find you? Do you have a website or any sort of handles Jeremy, people can find? JeremyAllen.com. Very good. Yeah. All right, well, thank you so much for doing this. Excellent. Uh, yeah, thank you. This has been uh, yeah, great. A great yes. story. <laughs> awesome. All right, folks. Wasn't that fun? What did you think, Cody? Oh, I really enjoyed it. If you found it interesting, please like and subscribe to Elsewhere wherever you have the power to do so. Yeah, and leave us a review. Tell your friends. In these early days, that really is the best way that you can help out the show, and we would appreciate it. And if you want to reach out to the show, you can write us an email at eastvandaelsewhere at gmail.com. You can follow Ian on Instagram at Eastvanda Elsewhere. You can find me on SoundCloud as Bitcrack. And you can find us at our home on the web at eastvantoelsewhere.com. We're going to play you out today with something that's a little bit different. I only just started reading Jeremy's second book, Bally Blues, after we'd already recorded the first interview. And in this book, he goes into a lot more detail talking about the sort of religious traditions of Indonesia, specifically in Bali, which is mostly Hindu. And in the chapter of the book that I'm reading now, they're doing a bunch of kind of purification rituals to bless the island after the Bali bombings. And the music that they were playing is described as so intense that all these people in the crowd are going into these seizure-like trances and some of the high priests are biting into the jugular veins of the sacrificial animals. It's quite the, quite the scene. That, uh, that sounds like something I need to read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's all in the book. And uh, yeah, you can definitely borrow it when I'm done. Thank, but, you. Uh, Thank you. But anyway, I found some of the music, or at least the same type of music, that would be played during uh, that kind of festival. It's a little bit long, but I would recommend listening to it all the way through as the tempo totally changes halfway through and it gets super weird, and I think you're going to really like it. It's called Reinkarnasi by Kuno Kini. Catch you next month.